0: We’ve been hearing from a lot of teachers and parents who use Tumble for education, and we love it.
1: We heard from Miss Zenos and her third graders who make sketch notes as they listen to each episode. We also heard from Rachel and her son Owen, who learned about the salamanders around their home after listening to our first episode about the Barton Springs Salamander.
0: Keep those emails coming, because hearing from our listeners about how they use the podcast makes our day, and we value your feedback and support so
1: much. That's one of the reasons we're now offering an ad-free version of the podcast. Ads help us pay for hosting and other necessities of having a podcast, like Pants. But if you support us on Patreon for a dollar a month, you can get access to a special podcast feed with no ads.
0: If you pledge at the $5 level, you'll get the ad-free podcast, a shout-out on our show, and all of the educational materials we're producing now.
1: And at the $10 level, you'll get the ad-free podcast, educational materials, and a really fashionable Tumble t-shirt. Plus, all the love and appreciation we can send over the internet, which is worth at least an extra $5 a month.
0: So, thanks to our new Patreon supporters, Indigo, Owen, Ben and Tooley, and Virginia... And their families.
1: Your support means the world to us. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
0: This week, we're learning about snow.
1: That white stuff that mysteriously falls from the clouds when it's cold.
0: We'll hear how scientists are combining forces with people whose lives depend on snow. To understand how snow is changing as the world gets warmer.
2: Hello, my name is Owen Smith. I am six and I'm from Reno, Nevada. My questions are how is snow made and why does it snow in certain parts of the country? Hi, I'm Stella Peterson, and I'm 10 years old, and I have a question
1: for you. Why are snowflakes not the same size or shape? It's probably not a coincidence that we're getting lots of questions about snow right now.
0: When everybody's walking around in their snow pants.
1: (laughs) And snowshoes, and the East Coast is uh, under a very thick blanket of blizzard.
0: It seemed kind of random to me at first, because it never snows here, and I can't tell the difference between the seasons
1: that's true it's just there's hot and then there's like less hot
0: I miss snow a lot
1: you know I have to say I do not miss it at all (laughs) I grew up with plenty of snow I'm fine with the fact that I never see it anymore
0: don't you love skiing and sledding and making snowballs
1: you know what else I like is going outside in a (laughs) t-shirt that's nice
0: but you have to admit that snow feels kind of magical
1: that is true It is beautiful when you get that first snow.
0: Yeah, and of course, there's a science to it. To answer Owen and Stella's questions, I called Kelly Elder, a scientist with the U.S. Forest Service, who's been obsessed with snow since he was a kid.
2: I waited all summer for the next winter. (laughs) So
1: I guess he doesn't like going outside in a (laughs) t-shirt.
0: He loves snow, and that's why he became a hydrologist, a person who studies the water cycle. Snow is one of the three phases of water.
2: What happens in the atmosphere is you have lots of water molecules floating around by themselves in gas or vapor form.
0: Up in the clouds, these lonely water molecules are looking for friends.
2: And they look for little nucleating particles.
0: Nucleating particles are tiny specks of dust or other solids floating around with the water molecules. When it's cold and moist, they make great friends, because they give the water molecules something solid to latch onto.
2: And then as soon as one locks on, another one locks onto it, and it forms a crystal. A crystal? Like, aren't those usually rocks?
0: Snowflakes are crystals too. And just like the hard kind of crystal, (laughs) diamonds and quartz, they grow molecule by molecule into beautiful patterns.
1: That's amazing. But what is the answer to Stella's question?
2: Why are snowflakes not the same size or shape? So people talk about there being no two snowflakes alike. That's because if a single snow crystal is made up of millions and millions of molecules, there's millions and millions of ways that they can lock together.
1: All right, I get it. So, like, millions of ways means that it's very unlikely that any two will be identical.
0: Exactly. It's amazing to think about all the different patterns that snowflakes might make.
2: They also change from the time that they form high in the atmosphere till the time that they hit the ground, because they go through lots of different conditions. So they'll grow, and they'll start to shrink, and then they'll grow faster on one arm or two arms, or all the arms at the same time. Wait, so snowflakes are changing mid-air?
0: I know, that's like the coolest thing.
2: (laughs) So the stuff that we see hitting the ground has millions and millions of options for the way it comes out. Okay, so there's millions of patterns.
1: But to go back to Owen's question, why does it snow in some places but not others?
0: Well, Earth's surface has to be cold enough to keep the water molecules frozen.
2: It snows a lot in the atmosphere everywhere up high because the clouds are often frozen. But by the time it hits the Earth, it's melted again.
1: So that's when we get
2: rain. Exactly. So a lot of rain is actually starting as snow. But what happens in higher latitudes is you get farther and farther away from the equator. Or in the United States, as you go farther north, you get into colder air temperatures.
0: In cold places, snow makes the journey all the way from the clouds to your outstretched mittens.
1: Or tongue. Or feet. Or body.
0: Or all the way onto the ground.
2: Where you can make a snow angel.
0: Or a snowman.
2: The farther you go north, the longer the snow stays on the ground.
1: Well, so we live here in Texas where if there's like a quarter inch of snow on the ground, they declare a state of emergency and shut everything down. But, you know, I grew up in Chicago where you only had a snow day if you literally could not open your door because there was so much snow piled up against it.
0: I know it's hard to believe, but there are places that are even colder and snowier than Chicago.
1: Places like Minneapolis or Syracuse, New York.
0: (laughs) It might be cold in those places, but temperatures are rising in higher latitudes.
1: And that's because of climate change, right?
0: Yes. Our global climate is getting warmer. Scientists agree that climate change is caused by things we're doing, like burning coal and driving cars. These things are changing our planet's natural weather patterns and not for the better. It means big changes for snow on Earth.
2: It's warmer, so we're getting more of the precipitation in the form of rain. That's because when temperatures
1: rise, it's not cold enough to keep the snowflakes as snow.
0: Right, and so a warmer climate means less snow.
2: Snow season starts later and ends earlier in the winter.
0: Most of us are noticing this change as just something weird. But for the Inuit, who are the native people living in the farthest northern places of the U.S. and Canada, it's a huge difference from past years.
2: Our winters change a little bit here. Their winters are changing a lot up there. They're seeing more changes that are happening faster. They're really living climate change up there. And climate change has a more profound effect on them.
0: The Inuit culture, like everything they do and how they live, relies on a long, frozen winter.
1: Like building igloos and dog sledding?
0: Yeah, and during the winter, they're traveling long distances to go hunting for their traditional foods. Animals like walrus, seal, and caribou.
2: Snow cover covers up things that are hard to travel, and it gives them ice to travel on frozen water.
0: Without snow and ice... Their dogs tear up their feet on rocks, and their snowmobiles get wrecked.
2: Oh, because it's not
1: like they have, like, lots of roads up there.
0: Exactly. So traveling on frozen land is a big part of their traditional way of life. That's also why they have their own traditional science.
2: Their own science? The Inuits have their own signs, and they have a very long tradition of of a high level of understanding of snow and weather and climate.
1: So what does that mean? Like, do they do experiments and talk about Star Trek?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly. They have a way of making very specific weather predictions for their area, as well as places that are far from home.
2: They're very, very good weather forecasters. It's the same kind of thing that our weather forecasters would do with a computer and with models and with instruments. And they can walk outside and look at the sky and say, in two days we will have north winds and lots of snowfall.
0: And it's not just that there will be snow, they'll know what kind of snow and how it might affect their travel plans.
1: Okay, so they're thinking about science in terms of what they need to understand day to day to live in such an extreme environment.
0: Exactly. For most of their history, Inuit science existed completely independent of what we call Western science. But the Inuits began to discover that their predictions weren't as accurate as they'd always been.
2: We started studying with them because they were looking for answers to changes that they were seeing that they couldn't explain.
0: Kelly and other scientists were eager to team up with the Inuit. They also wanted to understand the changes that the Inuit were seeing, but they needed more information about what climate had been like in the past in order to predict the future.
2: We don't have very much data from northern latitudes because we just started studying there. So their knowledge combined with western science is a really good combination for learning about global climate.
0: The Inuit had that data, but it didn't come in numbers or spreadsheets.
2: Did did they make
1: spreadsheets in the snow and ice (laughs) using a chisel, say? (laughs) I wonder what kind of formulas you would have.
0: (laughs) Well, their data was in their oral tradition. Stories passed down through generation after generation, telling of long winters and snow conditions and sea ice, and scientists would sit with villagers and interview them.
1: Wow, so scientists are able to turn your stories into years and numbers.
0: Yeah, it's not like the science we know of taking precise measurements with instruments, but Kelly's team recognized that the Inuit did have that information, just a different way of knowing about it and communicating it.
1: That's really cool. So the Inuit lent their
2: scientists some of their science.
0: And the scientists lent the Inuit some of theirs.
2: So one of the things we did with with the Inuit is select locations for some weather stations that are way outside of town.
0: These remote weather stations are in places that Inuit often travel, but couldn't confidently predict anymore. Now they collect measurements for wind and weather conditions.
2: And then they are broadcast by satellite back to town. They can say to themselves, well, I think it's probably really windy uh, 100 kilometers north of town today. And then they can look at the data and see that, yes, in fact it is, or it's not as windy as they thought.
0: So just as climate is changing and snow is changing, Inuit science is changing too.
1: And the Inuits are trying to adapt.
0: Right. It's really hard, but science has some tools to help.
2: And it sounds like scientists are learning a lot from it too the Inuit have been wonderful to work with, because they've taught me so much about snow. And it's not like I just started studying it yesterday, and I'm learning things that I never thought I'd learn. I think we need more science like that. I've learned different ways of looking at the same things I've looked at. So if you live in a place where it snows,
1: you can go outside and study it. You've probably looked at
0: a snowflake that you've caught in your hand, But Kelly recommends getting a cheap magnifying glass, getting down on your belly.
1: In your snow pants, because uh, you don't want to have water snoking through your jeans.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So get your snow pants on and go look at snow on the ground.
2: As soon as snow is on the ground, it starts to change. And people think of snow on the ground as this white, cold stuff that all looks the same. Look at it through a magnifying glass. You'll see things that you'll be amazed at. There's all kinds of different shapes. They don't look like the ones falling out of the sky, but things happen on the ground that are quite profound and beautiful too.
0: Kelly recommends keeping a journal of your snow observations year after year. You might notice changes in your own environment just like the Inuit did.
1: Send us your observations, drawings, photographs, and questions. You could even try to send us snow but it'll probably melt before it gets here.
0: (laughs) Thanks to Kelly Elder, research hydrologist at the U.S. Forest Station Rocky Mountain Research Station in Fort Collins, Colorado. To learn more about the weather stations he helped set up and see actual data and photos coming back from them, which is really cool check out the blog on our website, tumblepodcast.com.
1: And thanks to Owen and Stella for sending us their questions.
0: We want your questions. Email us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com or use the contact form on our website, tumblepodcast.com.
1: And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes if you haven't already. It really helps other people discover the show.
0: And we love reading what you have to say.
1: We also want to let you know we have an intern now. She is awesome, and her name is Andrea Gonzalez.
0: Thanks, Andrea. Sarah Lentz is our associate producer. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I produce this show.
1: My name is Marshall Escamilla, and I make all the music. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for more stories of science discovery.